Showtime! Ladies and gentlemen, please make your way to your seats. Showtime! Please make your way to your seats. The show is about to begin. Showtime! Let the magic begin! Welcome to Future Tech, your weekly source for the latest in tech innovation and business. I'm the startup coach, and as always, I'm joined by my joined by my co-host, John Irwin. How are you doing today, John? Good, thanks, Craig. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to dive into some of these articles that uh, you've been posting. Let's just jump into some of this cool news. So the first one we're going to be talking about, and for anybody who wants to follow along, the leak links are in the show notes, so take a look there. Japan's world's largest nuclear fusion reactor achieves first plasma. Tell us a little bit about this JT6OSA reactor that no one can understand the name of. Yeah. What is it and what's the big deal? Sure, yeah. Let me caveat this by I am by no means a nuclear expert. I'm by no means an expert in any of this tech that I'm talking about. I'm just a geek that loves to talk about or learn about new tech and new things that are going on. Um, so this this is about nuclear fusion. So currently, um, all of the reactors that are out there in the world are nuclear fission, which means they split the um, they split particles in order to create heat. So nuclear fusion is kind of what happens on the sun. Nuclear fusion holds immense promise as a virtually inexhaustible source of clean energy, but um, achieving controlled fusion on Earth remains one of science grand challenges due to the extreme conditions required to fuse atomic nuclei. After over 15 years of construction and testing, Japan has made a significant step forward with a successful initiation of plasma in their reactor JTS-0SA. Um, it's the world's largest and most advanced experimental fusion reactor and it's located at the GAE NACA Fusion Institute. So the Tokamak reactor is designed to heat hydrogen plasma to over 200 million degrees Celsius and maintain it for around 100 seconds. So that's far, that is far surpassed the capabilities of preceding large fusion devices. Um, and I think there was one in France as well that's also doing something, but I'm not too familiar with that one. Um, so its primary goal is to provide crucial data to help optimize plasma stability, confinement, and performance for this multinational organization called the International Nuclear Fusion Research Project. ITER, for short, is based in France, and it aims to be the first fusion experiment to achieve a net energy gain by the mid-2030s. And I know that sounds far off, but that's not. With the first plasma milestone that Tokamak has, has achieved, it demonstrates its potential to validate key fusion technologies and operations critical to ITER's objectives. If they can continue on this path, fusion power can hold the promise to become a virtually inexhaustible source of base load energy worldwide. And the good thing about this is it can replace everything. It can replace, well, we want to replace coal. We want to replace everything. So it can be the clean energy that we're looking for. Uh, but it's still going to take years. This reminds me a little bit of the Bill Gates project that he's working on, which is fifth or sixth gen. It's been a while since I looked at it, nuclear or that eats its own. This in itself isn't really a nuclear reactor. It's just thing to create plasma. And eventually they're going to build this reactor to create energy. 
the purpose of this is just for scientific discovery. Yeah. What is, and and we say it's going to generate more energy than used to create the thing, um, which usually becomes a perpetual energy machine, which is what you know all science fiction. Eventually, that's the thing that blows up, right? It's oh, it's yeah, we can't shut it down. It's creating its own energy. We <laughs> so one. We've been promised nuclear and all sorts of alternative energy for a long time. 2030 is only seven years away. That's not that far. Are we going to see this in our lifetime? <laughs> That's a great question. Without getting into too many of the details, because I don't want to, I don't want to come up. I don't want to say things that are inaccurate. I know that as far as technology goes, there are huge magnets which were needed in order to to build this test facility um and i don't think the technology was there until recently and so based on where we are with technology and where we're going i do think that we're going to see this in our lifetime are we going to create a reaction that ends up blowing up the world i don't think so i think that's why they're doing this in steps and, the, and they're doing this slowly in order to get to the the tipping point i guess I, I do think that that there is that and I wouldn't think of it as perpetual motion because I obviously with perpetual motion and with the way physics are there's really uh, and this is this is controversial perpetual it's, energy not perpetual motion. energy sorry yeah that's right um yes yeah it is because it's going to continue to uh to produce energy from a initial start it's a lot safer that's a good thing but um, and it doesn't produce as much um, byproducts. It, they're less radioactive and shorter lived as, as far as fusion byproducts go. Whereas fission produces radioactive waste that remains dangerous for thousands of years. Uh, a couple other things to think about too is where fission, um, it relies on rare elements like uranium that are non-renewable. Fusion uses hydrogen isotopes. So it could in theory be utilized sustainably, sustainably from seawater, which is kind of cool interesting i read about the project delays what were the challenges they faced and did, how did it affect the overall uh oh, reactor project and this is yeah this is why this is this this is taking a long time because they need to get it right so it's taken almost 15 years to complete to, to complete what to get to where they had so it's been redesigned after having initial issues uh it recovered from disruptions like there was a 2011 earthquake um, in 2021, a serious problem occurred during testing when a superconducting coil, that's those those big magnets I'm talking about, right, had a short circuit. <laughs> so it damaged connections. It required over two years to fix. Um, but it could have been much worse if power levels were higher, which is why I'm saying they're doing this in steps to make sure that they're, they're, they're not going to blow up the world. The incident highlighted the importance of cautious testing, so given the much larger scale. So it also showed that unforeseen complications can lengthen construction uh, substantially. So this is all new technology. And if you think about when you're getting into new technology, like for example, quantum computers, those take forever. So everything is taking much longer because the technology is newer and we're, and we're pushing the boundaries of what we currently know. I kept reading if the charge was uh, more, if there's more energy in the circuit, it could have been much worse, but yeah. They never actually say what much worse could mean. <laughs> and when we're talking about this kind of stuff, it's, you know, I I'd like to know, like, if that was, you know, 10 times charted, would have we had a hole in the ground and a bunch of people dead or would it just been? That's a good question. I'm, 
I, I, to be honest, I don't know what much worse could be. That would be a question for someone who's an expert in nuclear energy, but it is a good question. It's something that we should be thinking about and questioning because I, it, obviously we have experts who are doing this and they're doing it in baby steps to make sure that, that things catastrophic don't happen, but you never know. This is new technology and there could be problems that happen that we, that even the experts couldn't foresee. Yeah. Yeah. They just said much worse, like five times in the article, but they didn't elaborate. And I felt it was like they were leaving stuff out. Yes, absolutely. They're definitely going to leave stuff out because this is such a new um, venture, new, new, new technology. Like they don't want to release too much information and worry people where, um, because if they're not worried, then, then I guess that might be a good thing. I'm not sure. Little curveball here. When are we going to get backyard nukes? (laughs) <laughs> actually funny enough in i think the 50s 40s 50s 60s there was i think it was ge that was touting i could be wrong um touting these these individual nuclear reactors for homes and um i do honestly think that we will get to that someday i won't be nuclear fusion it could be nuclear fusion but i doubt it because of the byproduct but it could be something it could be a hybrid of something but i do think we are going to get to something like that we have people right now who are getting dropping off the grid because of the 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 advances in solar technology now? I don't know what that looks like, but I yeah, um, our grid can't sustain all of the electronics and everything that is currently on it. All of the 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 amperage that people are pulling, it's just it's too much. We need something that's that's going to solve that. So, is it nuclear fission? I don't know. Is it nuclear fusion? I doubt it, but it's something. Between you and me, it's my understanding that the military is already using these so-called backyard nuclear reactors to power, you know, remote posts or whatever they're doing. But hey, that's the conspiracy. We'll move on. (laughs) Our second story, it's all about batteries. You're talking about, you know, energy batteries. There's always a topic of batteries. And before we get into this, I want to say there's always been that saying. You've probably heard it. There's liars, there's dirty, filthy, disgusting liars, and then there's battery engineers. So, (laughs) like, for every tech project, for everything, they promise they're going to deliver this thing, and they deliver nothing anywhere close to it. Sulfur selenium solid-state batteries from NASA breaks energy storage boundaries. So this is obviously a hot topic. We're talking about dropping off the grid and being able to do things. What is this sulfur selenium battery? Yeah, so this is cool because this has potential for avionics. As we know, batteries have been powering clean energy. But right now, the best battery out there that we currently have is lithium-ion technology. That is a scalable technology that is available. It's in your EVs. It's in your cell phones. It's in your. It's in everything, pretty much, that you use. The energy density and safety of lithium-ion, as, you, as you've heard, batteries have blown up on the plane. Uh, exploded, they've overheated. There's a whole bunch of problems with them because they're unstable. If you actually, you could do an experiment. I don't I don't suggest you do this, but if you take a lithium ion battery and you hammer and you, and you destroy it, uh, it could potentially overheat. It's very unstable. NASA has this program called uh, the Solid State Architecture Batteries for Enhanced Rechargeability and Safety, SABERS for short. And they've been researching batteries beyond lithium ion for critical applications and like I said, aviation. So their latest development is a sulfur selenium solid state battery. And I like to say it's a prototype because 
obviously. It's demonstrating great potential to advance energy storage. Essentially, it has an energy density that's double that of lithium ion. The other thing is it has an ability to rapidly charge and also withstand harsh conditions. There are obviously right now, there's significant cost barriers that remain before you can we can commercialize the, the technologies. There are some advantages, there, there's lots of advantages over lithium ion. Obviously, there's some still some barriers as far as commercializing it, scaling it, all that sort of stuff. So I understand that there's no water or liquid in these. No, these are solid state. So what that what that means is that there are there's without getting into battery chemistry or how batteries are made, it's just all of the all of the pieces within the battery are solid, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm just saying so we're not gonna get leakage. No. And based on what I read, uh, because uh, there's no water, you don't have to or no liquid, you don't have to package it the same way. It's lighter. You don't have to wrap every individual cell. You can plunk it together. You know, and, and that's funny you say you don't have to wrap each individual cell because if you actually look inside the battery of a Tesla, uh, Tesla, it's a bunch of AAA or AA batteries. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, I know people don't realize that it's just a bunch of single batteries wrapped Build together. Your own if you wanted, right? You just go to buy a bunch of Duracells or Energizer. We're not sponsored by either of those, but yeah. The uh, sulfur technology is not the only one that's being developed. There's lithium metal, there's lithium sulfur, there's lithium selenium, there's sodium ion. There's a whole bunch of different batteries that are, or different battery technologies that are being developed that we, we don't need to get into today. But the reason why this one's cool is because this, we, like when it comes to, to planes, the problem with the current batteries is they're too heavy and the, their energy density is too low, which means the amount of power that you need uh, is is the amount the weight is too much for the amount of power that you need. All there are some electric airplanes out there, but none that can sustain uh, a long flight like what we need currently for commercial airplanes. You mentioned charge fast, so I read I didn't see the charge fast, but I read the discharge fast. So. I guess that gives you, you know, your plane taking off power boost that it needs, but how fat much faster does it charge? Like, you know, when we talk about, you're talking about planes and that's great. I think we're going to see it in other things first, depending on how rare sulfur selenium, the content of the batteries are, because unless the price is too high, we'll see commercial use in other areas first before planes, mm -hmm. how fast Faster is the charging versus lithium. From what I read, the it's able to discharge ten times faster than lithium ion. But does that mean it can charge that much faster? Yes, I don't know if it can charge, but I know that it can charge and discharge faster. I don't know how much faster it can charge, but I know based on the article that I read, it's it's it can charge it can discharge about ten times faster. Yeah, because EVs are a big topic, and we'll get to that probably in the next episode or shortly anyway. Yeah. And uh, one of the big drawbacks is even with the fast charger, it can take an hour to charge. Yeah. And if you start thinking about you know going to the gas station and standing there for an hour, it does. It's not attractive. So if you can get that down to minutes, it becomes a different proposition. Absolutely. Then it's just like filling up your gas tank. And there's other there's other issues with that. So the issues with the discharging and, and charging is the energy density around the, the lithium ion batteries as well. 
in order, so it, it's how when you're charging a battery, you're adding more ions into it. And so the quicker you can get those in, the quicker they can come out, if that makes sense. What are the challenges for reaching commercialization? When are we going to see something like this? The thing is, is okay, th again, this is a prototype. So there's the performance metrics you're promising, but there's issues around, like I said, the battery cost. There's testing certification protocols that can take years. So even though they're touting this as safe technology, even it's still in prototype phase. As they continue testing and, and testing to certain specific certification protocols, they could run into additional issues. But what we're, what they're saying in this article is that early testing is showing promising. And the thing is for aircraft, if we wanted to use this in aircraft, the cost would need to decrease significantly. And I don't know what, what that number is. But also because it's a prototype, they still need to improve energy density, cycle life, which is really uh, which is really critical, and lifetime energy throughput. They need to make sure that they that all of those are 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 more viable. Advancements. What they need is advancements that demonstrate five to ten year lifespan under flight thermal pressure cycles, uh, which could support initial electric commuter plane deployments. They're saying by twenty thirty. So again. Follows that that timeline of maybe we'll get fission before we get these new batteries, but fully certifying designs suitable for trans transcontinental passenger jets may require even even longer. But again, in order to overcome that for now, if they wanted to, they could come up with some sort of a hybrid solution. It would be better than what they have now. Well, they have to come up with something for cars because if people haven't noticed, the secondhand market for electric cars is non-existent they wear down faster and then you can't resell them so they don't last as long for a number of reasons like the tires wear faster because they're heavier and yeah. so the question becomes is in the you know the batteries usually 70 percent of the car you know what's going to happen to the auto market in four or five years when most of these evs batteries aren't working the way they used to yeah. and you need to trade them in especially in a place like canada i'm optimistic about something like this because yeah. of the solid state nature of it because yeah. you know in cold weather we lose a lot of power and yeah. um you know on your batteries and whatnot and it's um it has an impact and people it's all great if you're in california but <laughs> if you're here in yeah. toronto or in canada anywhere and every year we have at least one if not multiple traffic jams on the 400 where people are stuck in the snow for 11 hours. Do you want to be that in your Tesla when no. it's negative whatever outside and your battery's at what level and you're just trying, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, um, you, you lose about half of your range in the winter almost. Like you can, it's crazy. It, it's absolutely nuts. The other thing too, Craig, to think about too is recycling these batteries is, is, is nearly like, it's costly and it's nearly impossible, I think. I could be wrong, um, but it's, uh, it's very difficult, very costly. And I know um, over in, in Asia, I think it's China or Japan, they've developed some technologies. I, this isn't a solution, but they've developed technologies where instead of sitting there charging, they take your you car in, battery. Yeah. drop the battery, put in a new one. I don't think that's the solution either. So, But I think that, we, yes, we absolutely do need some sort of new battery technology. And I know there's a lot in the works. This is just one. I thought it was cool because it's NASA. And in case you didn't know, NASA is the one that gave us our wireless drills, high torque, uh, high power wireless drills. They developed that for, for working out in space. And that technology now is what we use every day. So hmm, that I did not know.
so we got one more article here, a little bit more up my alley, as it were. About the other stuff isn't, and we're going to talk about EVs in another episode because that's a rabbit hole in itself. So what's this article from Beta Kit that says uh, Canada is struggling to convert startups to scale-ups? Yeah, and being you and I being in the startup world, I I think I think we we definitely um, we, uh, mirror that that statement, or at least I I've seen it. A new report that came out from EDC, which is Export Development Canada, found that while Canada's startup sector has experienced impressive growth growth in recent years, the country still faces challenges in helping young companies transition to large scale enterprises. And what they say for that is that they cite inadequate levels of private sector R&D spending, as well as difficulties accessing later stage financing, financing options as factors hindering Canadian startups from achieving scale compared to peer nations. Um, on top of that, um, what the analysis found was that conversion rates from startup to established businesses lag international standards. The article kind of, in the article itself, it summarizes key findings of the EDC report, which suggests that policy and programming adjustments are needed to strengthen Canada's competitiveness in converting innovative startups into globally significant scale businesses. And I know that Canada also dropped. So there's this there's this report that comes out on the global R&D uh, the amount of R&D that's coming out of each country. I know Canada has dropped in that as well. So when they say comparative countries, I know you probably don't have the answer to this. And and I always hate when you see stuff like this, because it's, is that by GDP, by population? Like is the I U.S. Do. a comparative? Okay. Canada struggles for multiple reasons. One is we're one of the largest countries in the world physically. Yeah. And we're spread out. It is hard to target a large enough market in a single geographic area in Canada where, say, in a European country of the same GDP, it wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, so that's a big thing. But secondly, that, so we just got to keep that in mind. I'm not making excuses. It's just it's just harder. So, you know, I always suggest you, you, you tackle a small market here in Canada, get your stuff down. And then if you're ready, you know, let's Go attack up. the U.S. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, but get it. You know, it's cheaper, easier to figure out your messaging in your market and all that kind of stuff here, or your product market fit, and then use you know government funding. You you can talk more about that in a bit uh, about some of the stuff you can use to go international. Historically, and I'm going to say some maybe controversial things here because this is the way it is. Unfortunately, the government's been going about these things the wrong way. I've seen them give lots of money to IBM, Google, big companies that are based elsewhere. They give them millions of dollars to help startups. So they help small businesses and whatever. And the most promising ones they buy and they take to the U.S. So mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, why are you giving this money to U.S. companies to steal our IP and take the best IP away? Like, what? Like, are you not seeing what's happening here? Like, it's just, why are you doing that? Focus on keeping the IP here. Why are we not with BDC, Futurepreneur, even with an organization like mine, working with the government and saying, all right, with these accelerator programs, why can't we work out a, a thing where we keep the IP here? Yeah. Why can't we get a percentage of the IP that actually go to the Canadian government? We're a socialist society. What the hell? And then that funds incubator and accelerator gives us more money to prop up the clean tech industry. 
Secondly, why are we not adopting these technologies? If we have these homegrown great technologies and great startups, why are we not uh, getting our cities, municipalities, giving them funding to adopt these things and being a leader? There's a few things here. I'm going to throw some stuff over. I could throw it over to you because I can rant all day on this particular thing. Why do you think we're struggling from uh, startup to scale up? First off, I love the SHRED program, the Scientific Research and Experimental Development. It's Canada's largest funding program at over $3 billion. But the problem is, is they make it so prohibitive to, to, to get to be successful. And I know there's, there's fraudulent claims and all that sort of stuff. But we're the only country, and, and I'll, I'll tell this, we do give away, we do give back the largest tax credit out of any nation that I know of, I'm pretty sure. 60 in Ontario, about 63 cents on the dollar. The way, so everywhere else, it's called the R&D tax credit. It's based off the Frascati manual, which you know for, for doing R&D, but Canada has decided to hone it in. So you have, you have your R&D project, which covers a lot more costs. Then you have your shred, which covers a sliver of that R&D cost. Now they did make some positive changes to to the shred program in the recent years, and that was Jason Charon, great guy from 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 CRA. He made some great positive changes, and they're going back to kind of making it easier. But there's still challenges there. It's still a very convoluted program, still very difficult. And the biggest thing, outside of the credit being a tax credit, the biggest thing is there's a huge disconnect between what an actual startup is and what the government sees as a startup. And the government sees a startup as, well, you've been in business for two years. You probably have some revenue. You have some employees. That's not a startup. A startup is they're fresh. They, there may be pre-revenue. Uh, there may be bootstrapping. Like they've got, they're, they're struggling to get to a bot, to an MVP. They're struggling to get to a POC. What the government needs to recognize, and, and hope, hopefully some people hear this, is that they need to recognize that there are these startups there that are struggling to find funding because there's nothing really out there because of these 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 definitions that the government has there's also a grant and i can't remember what it's called but it, it allows you to go into the us for example and do a bunch of marketing and whatnot yeah. um, that is something that's interesting i always like that program i'll throw it over to you in a second but my thought also is why doesn't the government streamline that they have a whole department that actually helps you we say okay you're here here are the conferences here here who got discounts we'll show you how to roll this out because we want you to scale why are we not spending money doing these things rather than saying okay startup that we've defined as a company that has some revenue maybe an employee or two uh, it's been two years of business you go figure it out mm -hmm. rather than saying here you're going into the us we have a whole program that's going to help you and we have people designed to like when you're ready we know we have this criteria and here's where we help you now i like the program as it exists what uh, you tell me what's it called can export this the can export uh, SME. yeah yeah and what do you uh, get for that so now they've reduced it now you get um 50 up to fifty thousand dollars uh it used to be 75 percent up to seventy five thousand. So the other thing with that too is it's now like it used to be open all the time. You could just apply and, and whatever it used to be rolling, rolling intake. Now it's not. And that's the other problem with a lot of these funding programs is they're closing all the time. So they've got these small windows of opportunity. If you don't know about it, you're going to miss the boat. Back to you, Craig is like, okay, that's great. That's to help companies expand outside of Canada. And please, if there's someone out there that knows about a good program, please let me know. But what about expanding within Canada? What about promoting 
products within Canada with with to help them grow within Canada and get to a point within Canada. So um, I know there used to be the built in Canada program. I don't know if there's something that's still around like that, but that one was very difficult to to apply for. And the one other thing with Can Export is that you need at least a hundred thousand dollars in revenue on the product before you can apply for it. Again, there's the disconnect, like like we're saying, like between what is an actual startup is and what the government sees as a startup. Let's face it. Thread is great, but yep. you've taught told me, or other people have told me, like what is it, EA and all these huge development houses are taking advantage of coming here and hiring people. They're not exactly startup. It's not just them yep. that take advantage of that of yep. that particular program. I go back to, you know, why do we have? And I'm not trying to knock any of these programs. I'm going to mention, cool. just so you know, why do we have Founders Institute? A program run from the US, like, but we have Canadian people running here, but you know, they they take a percentage of the company. And again, it goes back. Techstar, similar thing, US based. These are the main type of accelerator programs that now we have Ryerson DMZ. That's great. Yep. Oh, sorry, now it's it's just DMZ because it's Toronto Metropolitan University, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm still gonna call it Ryerson and slip up, but we have some of these other programs that you know we need to really be thinking about. All right, let's do some homegrown stuff here. Let's keep the IP here. Yeah. Let's have not let's have a Can Stars uh, program where we're take keeping the IP here and taking a percentage of the business. And like I said, rolling that over to fund more programs. So we start doing it here rather than letting all of this stuff go to the U.S. And yeah, I think we need to have more encouragement to eat our own dog food in Canada, for lack of a better word. This is a startup word, uh, phrase, yeah. and that we shop Canadian, that we start uh, mm -hmm. looking at all these things here. I am not a big fan of when our prime minister is going out and dancing around on the world stage, unless he's trying to bring money and investment back here seems like more time he's trying to figure out where he's going to throw our money and resources elsewhere in the world versus, you know, let's talk about how are we going to fix our inflationary economy? How are we going to get everyone back to work? How are we going to do all these things? And small businesses and startups are at the heart of that. Um, I know you're talking about the DMZ. There's a couple that are decent. Like they're actually not decent. They're good. We've got 111. We've got the AC, the Accelerator Center. I think those are two really good ones. I know Communitech is good still. I think the other big problem, too, is you have a lot of these uh, companies, because there's lack of funds here, we do have angel investors for sure. We do have VCs. We do have a bunch of different things. But we don't have enough that are available at, um, and that have enough funding to support these companies, which is why a lot of these companies are becoming almost foreign owned because they have to go outside of Canada to get their funds. So the other flip side to that outside of government funding is the private private sector is in the private funding and all that sort of stuff. So we've got the dilutive and the non-dilutive. They're getting there. I know there's a lot of new funds that are coming out that are specific. I know there's one for BIPOC, there's ones for women in tech, which is awesome, but there's still a huge, there's still a huge gap there. I agree. Communitech's great. 111's great. But 111 is just new from a government-funded kind of a place that was privately held before. Yeah. But also, they're not national. They're not international. Yeah. There's no 111 in Vancouver. There's no Communitech all over. This is what I'm talking about. We don't have a nationalized program. We don't have it funded to say, let's get the best companies and the best ideas from all over and figure out how to bring them to the forefront rather than just saying, okay, great. 
like I run Toronto Starts, we're the largest startup community in Canada. I mean, we have access to all these great resources here and we help as many startups as we can. But, you know, that doesn't mean Vancouver, Calgary, PEI, Newfoundland have yeah. the same access to these resources, especially when they're localized. So it's not the same level across the country. They won't have the same skills, the same teachers, the same level of mentoring um, that they would necessarily in Toronto. You might get better ones, don't get me wrong, but yeah. because we're isolated or isolated, concentrated here yeah. as you know, a tech mecca and a place to get funding, really, most of the deals happen in Toronto, so that's why people come here to try and get the funding. You know, That's not what we have across the, the world, so across the country. So what should the Canadian government be doing about Communitech 111? Are these things we should be replicating? Futurepreneur is a great program to yep. start here and, and, and go up the ladder. There's a lot of great programs. At least that one is um, nationalized. So it's across Canada. Yeah. Um, but this is, yeah. this is, I guess my point is they're at very early stage. Once you get up there, there's, you know, creative instruction lab. There's a lot of great programs around. Yeah. It's just that they're either privatized or very local. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the problem is with, with us being the, the Mecca or the, the, the Silicon Valley of the North here, Cost of not because of that, but cost of living is high, and so that's also cost prohibitive for these startups to to come here and and to start up. Even though this is where they would get access to the incubators and accelerators and different things like that. So we've got to think about that. Is we've got to think about like obviously now post pandemic, there's a lot more options out there to do virtual. But again, it 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 always uh, and I not I'm the same. Big, I'm a big proponent of of hybrid work. I love it. Um, but it's not the same if you're always virtual. You're not going to get the same amount of support. You're, it's just, it's unless someone can come up with a solution right now, currently, it's not the same as going into and sitting one-on-one -on -one with people and, and, and mingling and talking with people. We recently had our Mentoring Magic event. I talked to the mentors and the individuals. Our next one will be virtual. And everyone I said that to said, oh, it's not the same as in person. Oh, it's not the same. Yeah. They were, they would rather drive three hours pay the 50 bucks for parking, come to the event. They'd rather do that than be able to flip a switch and do Zoom. Yeah. You're right. I think the, there is a right balance. Again, I love being able to do hybrid stuff because yeah. I'm not actually live in Toronto. I'm about an hour outside. So it's a pain in the butt for have a coffee with someone in Toronto where we get approached. All, hey, let's go for coffee. But yeah, the hybrid approach really works, but it's not the same as when you're in person. You don't make the same relationships. You don't make the same connections. And I don't know, understand enough about the psychology of human nature, the pheromones, the body language, the interactions mm -hmm. that makes that in-person relationship different or more long lasting from a memorable point of view than a virtual one. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I know that I, I know virtual is better than a phone call because you're meeting someone face to face, but it's never as good as meeting someone in person ever. Um, that, that, that connection that you, that you establish over a coffee, over a drink, over lunch, whatever, uh, is a stronger, is a stronger connection than, than virtual. But, um, I do, I must say, I do like that we do have a virtual option now that helps to kind of in that transition period or, or in that kind of that middle, middle ground. But just having a zoom call or teams call or something maybe it's more getting focusing more on virtual presence technology or something that that'll help but i don't think so we'll have to see what what comes up maybe we can talk about future tech when it comes to virtual presence or something in the future but yeah absolutely i think i don't want to get too off a tangent because i'm about to wrap this up but yeah we're we miss something here the educational system has missed something when it goes hybrid you lose something from a focus from an educational point of view 
definitely a future topic. But yeah. speaking of it, like we see each other once a month, maybe maybe twice a month physically, but yeah. we chat, we text, yeah. we're on Messenger or, or sorry, LinkedIn mostly. And then we do the Zoom thing when we, oh, let, we're working on this, let's chat. And that yeah. works great. Yeah. It's just you're right about the hybrid uh, yeah. aspect of it. So we don't always physically have to be in the same space. But I got to say, I went into the office the other day down to Workhouse, love Workhouse, and I enjoyed working out of there all day yeah. versus, yeah. you know, working by myself. So yeah. it's it's something to definitely think about. Yeah, like when I went into Workhouse and met you the other day, I got to run into Ryan Spears, who's the COO, and, and him and I had a great conversation, which we probably wouldn't have had if I hadn't have gone into the office. So. Yeah, shout out to Workhouse, by the way. Great partners of Toronto Starts. They have nine locations, I think, in Toronto. I think access, uh, drop-in space, 24-hour access to one location, plus access to all the other ones is like 350 bucks a month. It's nothing. That means you can have offices all over town. So check them out. I know it's, it's not really an ad, but they're a partner of ours, and it's great. So don't... Uh, You're awesome. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So this has been... Uh, wonderful. Speaking of networking, check us out at startupdrinksto.com. We do a monthly networking event. John's usually there. I'm always there. It's investors. It's open bar, pizza, craft beer from a, a local brewmaster startup. Come out and join us. There's rapid fire pitches, Startup Drinks TO to get, to get your tickets. And check out torontostarts.com for all our upcoming stuff. What do you got to uh, promote today? Well, that's uh, yeah. I was, I was gonna help promote. When is the next one? I think we have one coming up in November, right, Craig? November twenty third. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, nothing. Um, um, uh, just uh, guys, if if you ever uh, if you have any questions, if you have any questions about future tech, if you have any questions about government funding, about uh, where you're at with your startup, feel free to reach out to Craig. Reach out to myself. Happy, happy to to vet any questions and happy to have more conversations. If if anyone has solutions to any of these problems that we've that we've identified, especially when it comes to government funding, when it comes to private funding, would love to hear it because we we do have the ears of a lot of people and it does help sometimes. I know it moves slowly with government, but uh, every little bit can help sometimes. If you're an expert in any one of these areas we're talking about and are interested in coming on and discuss this stuff with us, let us know, reach out to us. Those links will be in the show notes. We'd love to hear about it. If you've got something interesting or articles you'd love us to discuss, send that in as well. And again, all that information, all the links, our contact info will be in the show notes. I really appreciate you taking the time this week, John. I really appreciate all those listeners. Remember to subscribe on your local podcast app so you can get us every week. Thanks a lot for your time today, uh, John. And thanks to everyone for listening to Future Tech. Thanks, Greg.